Hi everyone, real quick before we get started, just a reminder that if you enjoy this podcast and you want to support it, there are two primary ways you can do that. First, spread the word. Reblogs and Rex on Tumblr, Twitter, wherever are hugely appreciated because I love doing this for people and more people equals more love. Uh, second, go either to my Patreon or Keep Singing's website, both of which are linked at the top of my blog at dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com, and consider tossing a buck or two in my hat. It helps me deal with small incidental expenses associated with this, and also it's just a nice thing to do if you can. Thanks. Hello, Bethel fandom, and also anybody not in the fandom who stumbled onto this by accident. I have no idea how you would have done that, but you must be slightly confused. Welcome to Keep Singing, a Beth Green and Bethel and Daryl Dixon podcast. I'm your host, Dynamic Symmetry, primarily on Tumblr, but also Twitter and a bunch of other places. And yes, it has been a while since I talked to you guys. Uh, I mentioned that I got a new job. I did. I've been doing that. There have been a couple of other projects that have sort of been taking up a lot of my time. Plus, I've got super addicted to Minecraft, and it turns out it's incredibly difficult not to play that. It scratches a lot of my OCD itches in ways I can't entirely explain. Anyway, I am finally back to this, and this is going to be the second episode in our reading series wherein I am reading through two multi-chapter fics, one by one, and I am also adding on a little stinger of a one-shot. So today we're going to be continuing with Burn. We're going to be continuing with Safe Up Here With You, which is me. Burn is the vampire cat. And I'm going to be finishing up with a fic called Fragmented Amnesis. I might be pronouncing that wrong by CC5. It is sad. It's not super sad, but it's sad. And that's kind of funny because at the end of the last one of these, I said, oh, I'm going to try and find something not depressing next time. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. So maybe next time. But this this fig is so good, and and I really wanted to read it. And also, I don't think it's getting enough attention. Uh, I think that, like, more people should know about it. So I wanted to go ahead and, and share that with you guys as well. So without further ado... Let me go ahead and get to it. We are beginning with Burn, we are continuing with Safe Up Here With You, and we are finishing up with Fragmented Amnesis. See you on the flip side. Burn by the Vampire Cat Chapter 2 Revelation She wakes up to the sound of light rain, nothing more than a miserable drizzle, the type of rain that soaks you slowly, insidiously. Not real rain, then, but just wet enough to piss you off. Outside the air is hazy, the color of overcooked meat, gray and dull, and with a start, she realizes it's already dawn, a full 24 hours since she found that little car abandoned on the tracks, longer since she killed two men in cold blood, longer still since others fell under the steel of her blade. She shakes the thought away. Daryl's asleep, arm tied around her, rough hand gripping her waist, flush with her skin. She pulls the blanket higher over him, pleased to see that he hasn't moved, isn't sitting up, crossbow on his legs aiming at the door. It makes her sad that they've learned to sleep like that. Always alert, always ready to run, always fighting for their lives. He sighs, moves further back into the couch, head pressing against the corner where the arm and backrest meet. 
She takes the moment to study his face, the lines of stress by his eyes, the firm, hard set of his jaw, the scowl he wears even in sleep. She wants to kiss him again, feel the warmth, the wetness of his mouth, lose herself in him, lose herself forever. Fact was, he surprised her earlier when he kissed her, when her eyes fluttered closed under his clumsy embrace and she felt that searing heat rise in her chest. But then he's done nothing but surprise her since that night outside the cabin, the night that this thing, whatever it is, started burning on the ashes of his past. It freaks her out a little that only a few short months ago she'd been so pissed that of all the people in the prison to get stuck with, she'd ended up with him, emotionally stunted man-child that he was. She doesn't regret it, though. Not one minute of it. Not one bit, because she knows that without those days of sniping and snarling at each other like an old married couple, they'd never be here. Not like this. Not like now. She breathes in his scent. Leather. Sweat. Smoke. Blood. They'll never get the stench of death out of their clothes, their heads, their lives. She doubts they even really smell most of the decay anymore. It's become part of the air, part of the world. It's the one constant in this thing they call existence. He moves against her, says something unintelligible, a rough groan, hand tightening on her, arm heavy, and she allows herself a moment to relish this, to revel in his warmth, his closeness. She rests her head against him, his beating heart, his gentle breathing. There's a part of her wants to go and investigate the other houses, a small part, but a part nonetheless. It's obvious that this place was abandoned before everything fell apart, and chances are the other homes might have more supplies. But, looking at Daryl, she doesn't want to leave him. Not yet. If she's honest, not ever. On some level, she knows this is a problem. But it doesn't really feel like one. She kisses his chest, the dent of his breastbone. He sighs against her, another garbled sound from his throat. She hopes the rest of his sleep has been more peaceful than this, more peaceful than hers. She doubts it, though. His sleep isn't often tranquil. They spent long enough together before for her to figure that out. He'd toss and turn, sometimes moan, often getting up before her watch was done and taking over, telling her, harshly, to get some shut-eye, leave him be, go dream about boys or sing or some shit, writing that stupid-ass journal of hers. Initially, she'd gone, happy to be away from the world and its horrors, Happy to be away from him and his bad-tempered growls, his cruel sneers. But then everything changed. You don't get to treat me like crap just because you're afraid. Well, nearly everything. Except the way he slept. Still fidgety, still distressed. When they'd found the funeral home, he'd been slightly better. Only slightly, while he tried to stay awake, sitting on a froofy white satin chair after gallantly telling her to take the bed. He shifted back and forth, moved his two long legs this way and that, even dropped the crossbow once or twice. Eventually, when she realized neither of them would get any rest, she'd gone to him, picked up the striker, and told him to get in the bed. She'd used her no-nonsense voice, the sternest one she had, and he'd gone, grumbling and cursing and bellyaching like an old man bitching at the neighborhood kids to get off his lawn. But he'd gone. And when she climbed in next to him, propped up on a continental pillow, crossbow aimed at the door, he looked at her long and hard before rolling over to face the wall. He hadn't stayed that way long, though. A few minutes, and he was facing her again, reaching across the mattress to link his hand with hers. Didn't look at her as he did it, 
as he pulled her fingers into his, stayed focused on where their skin touched. He was matter-of-fact about it, too. As if this was just the way people slept. Brush your teeth, get your jammies on, say your prayers, take Beth Green's hand, and sleep. And it hadn't been more than a minute or two before she turned to him, freehand covering their linked ones, and fallen asleep, too. And then there was the next day. The day of the white dog. The day of his confessions. The day the world proved it could still get a little darker, a little harsher. She hasn't told him what happened. He asked before they fell asleep and she waved him away. Told him she was here now and that's all that mattered. For the moment, that's true. She'll tell him eventually, but not now. Not here in this place where they're safe, where they've locked the demons out. She stiffens as an image of gnashing teeth flashes through her head. Gnashing teeth and blood as black as tar, barking dogs and gunshots. The panic starts to rise, a dark wave that starts in her belly and threatens to choke her from the inside out. Like it has done every night, every single goddamn night since she lost him. She gasps, squeezes her eyes shut, and presses herself to him, fingers hard on his hip. His hand moves to cup her head to his chest, holding her while she trembles, while she bites her lip to stop from sobbing, until the panic ebbs, and she can breathe properly, until her muscles stop buzzing, and her body goes slack. She's not sure how much he's aware of, probably not much, his breathing is regular, eyes closed, but either way, she's grateful. Grateful for his closeness, his decency. She waits, waits until she can't feel it, can't feel the sting of the past few weeks, can't hear the screams, the sound of flesh being ripped apart, bones breaking. Waits until all she can hear is the sounds he makes, steady breaths, beating heart, the slight hitch in his throat. When she's calm again, for now at least, she knows it won't be for long, it never is, she moves her head back to the armrest. He is asleep, oblivious to the little panic attack she's just had, oblivious to the world. One thing at a time, Beth, she tells herself. One thing at a time, and you'll make it. You'll get through it if you focus on one thing, the thing you need to take the next step. It's when you start thinking too far ahead, when you let the complications overwhelm you, that it all goes to shit, that it all falls apart. Focus on what you need next. It worked for you before. Be logical. Be practical. Be bold. Thirsty, she disentangles herself from him and slips across the floor to his pack, digging through it until she finds a bottle of tepid water. It tastes old and stale, but they'll have more later when the ice cream tubs are full. If they find soap, there may even be enough for a bath or at least a wipe down. The idea of being clean is as enticing as it is foreign. She goes to the window and looks out into the haze, the fog. There's a walker inside the gate, one they must have missed when they arrived. It's only one, though. Nothing to worry about. They can get rid of it later. Easy. Simple. Straightforward. One thing at a time. Across the street, there's empty fields and weak wire fences. Abandoned farmland, now dealing with the encroaching urban sprawl. She shakes her head. No, actually, that's wrong. Urban sprawl is a thing of the past, dying along with most of the people on the planet. The next step is for nature to reclaim the cities. She finds the thought oddly comforting. Maybe Mother Nature will find a way of removing the blight of walkers from her pretty face. Then again, maybe not. Her legs cramp as she shifts to sit on the windowsill. Sore from running, from driving, from sharing a bed that isn't even a bed. A night she wouldn't trade, not for anything. She'll go back to him soon, to his arms, his embrace. 
but not yet, even though she misses it. She misses it so much. She rests her forehead against the cold, clammy glass, mildly surprised by how calm she is now. Not only after what just happened, but after everything. Today, yesterday, all the days since the prison fell, and all the days before that. That's not to say there isn't a part of her that wants to be hysterical, to scream, cry, throw things, freak out. Part of her longs for that release, that cathartic outpouring of rage, of fear, of elation. But she holds it together. For him, she holds it together. Like he's trying to hold it together for her. But the gnawing feeling is still there, and she wonders when it will chew through her defenses, and she'll just end up a goopy heap of tears on the ground somewhere. She wonders if Daryl will be there to pick her up again, and she finds that even the vague thought that he won't is enough to choke her up. She knows she's still high from the last two days, still overwhelmed. This feeling of peace, uneasy as it may be, isn't natural. It's a calm before the storm, as her daddy used to say. She's tried to be strong, tried not to let the insanity of the last few weeks get to her. She won't have another breakdown. She won't be that girl anymore. Absently, she rubs the scar on her naked wrist. Her bracelets are gone. She had to discard them, but now it feels like they were taken from her, taken even though they had no value to anyone but her. But then there's a lot of stuff people have tried to take which have no value to anyone but her. She thinks of Len, his sloppy kisses, the smell of him, the way he rubbed against her. Strangely, that doesn't make her want to cry. It makes her want to resurrect him and kill him all over again. She wonders if that's real strength, or if it's bravado. I wish I could just... change. You did. A movement catches her eye, small and blurry in the bad light. It's another walker, this one stuck in the fence across the road, flailing about like a scarecrow in a windstorm. They'll kill it later, along with the one inside. One at a time. Simple. Easy. Straightforward. Over her shoulder, Daryl sleeps, lying on his side, arms in front of his face, knees drawn up. Always defensive, always ready. Beth sighs. It wasn't meant to be like this. None of it was meant to be like this. That's how unbelievably stupid I am. She longs for the prison, for her father, for Maggie, Glenn, baby Judith. They'd found a kind of peace there, a solitude they won't get again. Life just doesn't give out second chances. Not like that. Not anymore. You've got to look after what you have, otherwise you lose it. You lose it and you don't get it back. And yet, watching him, she knows that she has got something back. It may not be perfect, it may not be everything, but it may be the only thing she ever gets back in this nasty world they live in. It's enough. He's enough. She takes another sip of water before screwing the cat back on the bottle and returning it to his pack. You don't leave your stuff out anymore. You've got to be able to get up and run at a moment's notice. Beth, get your shit! The memory kills her. How eager he was to rush into the lion's den. How automatic it was for him to want to sacrifice himself. Did he love her then, she wonders. Did he love her when he saved her? Did he love her when he risked everything for her? Or was that something he'd have done for anyone? For everyone? She doesn't know. She wants to believe it was her, but she doesn't want to lose who he is. 
the determination, the dedication, the devotion that makes Daryl Dixon Daryl Dixon. She wonders if he knows he loves her, if he understands what she hears when they speak, if he knows what he is actually saying to her. She thinks he does, even if he doesn't have the words. The question is, does she have the words? Is there any use for words of love in this new world? She thinks of Glenn and Maggie and decides there is. There has to be. He shifts under the blanket and she knows he'll wake soon. She wants to be there when he does. She wants to be there for him for as long as this evil world allows them to live. This man, this crazy, broken, beautiful, ridiculous, frightening, fucked up man. Thing was, once you got through all the bullshit, the anger, the self-loathing, he's remarkably easy to love. Easy to love. She rolls that phrase over in her head. Is that what he was? What she is? She doesn't know. She's never loved before. Maybe he hasn't either. When she was younger and boys were just starting to register on the Beth Green radar, the pretty little southern belle with the voice of an angel, she thought that falling in love would be like an earthquake or a tornado. She longed for the day that she'd feel the earth move, rock her world, change the course of her existence. Well, that last part is right, at least. The world has changed, but that has nothing to do with being in love. But when she thinks of how she feels right now, in this moment, in this abandoned house with him, she's grateful that love didn't come in like a natural disaster. Loving him is soothing, even if nothing else about him is. Beth? His voice is raw, low. She turns to look at the couch. He's frowning, confused, spooked. Yeah, I'm here, she says, going back to his side and sitting in the curve of his body. Okay, he asks. Yeah, just thirsty, she says. How's your arm? He grimaces and rolls onto his back. Feels like it's been hit with a tire iron. She smiles and puts a hand on his shoulder. She's been trying not to think too much about the previous day, trying not to let the million possible scenarios of how everything could have gone down get to her too much. It's part of that irrational calm, that denial of the chewing panic. She'd given herself permission to cry earlier, when he held her like she was the only person left on Earth, and that's done now. She won't be scared for the rest of her life. She won't let herself sink into despair, especially when, against all odds, they were together again. He's here, bruised, scarred, but he's here. She shivers. He opens the blanket. Come on. His voice is a little strained and she hesitates. Briefly, there's something in his eyes that looks like hurt. She doesn't understand it at first. It confuses her, throws her off. That quick frown, the hard line of his mouth. She knows that look. Is that what you think of me? And then she gets it. She gets him. She knows how he feels about her. He's been obvious, hasn't tried to hide it, but he's Daryl, and despite the fact that he sees things others don't, she knows that until the words are out of her mouth, he won't give himself permission to even imagine his feelings are reciprocated. She forgets that he can't look into her head, into her heart. And now he's trying to see himself through her eyes again, and her hesitation is a sign, a sign of discomfort, lack of trust. 
despite the kiss from earlier, the sleeping together, the openness. He still can't find it in himself to believe in her, to believe in them. Part of her wants to laugh at how wrong he is, but she's not stupid. Daryl is what the world has made him. Daryl is who he has to be to survive, and somehow over time, that's eroded his self-esteem, his confidence. Wounded, he drops the blanket. She leans forward and touches his cheek gently with her fingertips, a silent apology. He flinches, flinches like she's hit him. Don't, she tells him, running her hand through his dirty hair, brushing it away from his eyes, letting her fingers trail across his forehead, tracing around an ugly bruise left by one of those assholes he was running with. Running with while he waited for her, running with to fill the loneliness. She wonders if he thought about her while she was gone, if she was in his head and heart when he laid down to sleep at night, when he was surrounded by those yahoos who thought he was like them. Or did he push her away, pretend she didn't exist and make himself numb enough to follow the only people he could find? It breaks her heart. He always has, even before. He's like a beaten dog, eager to please, eager to love, but so quick to fall back into bad habits so eager to go to the first person who offers him a bone and bite anyone who'd give him something better. I'm glad I'm here, she says. He swallows and he covers her hand with his, stops her stroking his hair. With you, she adds, just to be sure, just so he can be sure. She holds his gaze, doesn't shy away, doesn't let him shy away. His thumb brushes against the hollow of her wrist. He makes a noise in the back of his throat, a gruff rumble of understanding, and surprise. It's another of those moments, those moments they've become so good at, those moments that last forever and ever and ever, and she can't, just can't anymore, so she doesn't, doesn't wait, doesn't think, doesn't stop, and kisses him again, letting her tongue brush across his closed lips. He jerks, fingers flexing at his sides. She sits back, looking at him. Beth. His voice is strangled and he's moving to sit up, but she puts a hand on his chest, pushing him back into the couch. Stop, she whispers, but she's not sure if she's asking him not to speak or not to move. Just stop. He stills, and she makes a decision. Maybe it's because she's looking for a way to channel the latent hysteria, an outlet, a release. Maybe it's because she doesn't know what today will bring, and lost opportunities erode the soul. Maybe she's still reeling from the events of today. Maybe it's just because it's him, and she's not the blushing virgin everyone thinks she is. Yeah, Daryl Dixon, she's noticed. Beth Green sure as hell has noticed. She lifts the blanket and settles next to him again, into the curve of his arm, head against his shoulder. He shifts onto his side, making room for her. The skin of his neck, shoulder, turns to goose flesh under her breath and he lowers his palm to her hip. No prompting this time, no stiff fingers, no fluttering hands. She can hear his heart, wonders briefly if he can hear hers, then stops caring as she looks up at him, at his blue eyes, the skepticism written on his face. You gotta put it away. Here. She runs her finger down his cheek, thumb resting on the corner of his lips. Her kiss is chaste at first, but this time he opens his mouth to her, responding to the wet stroke of her tongue. He tastes faintly of cigarettes, and a lot like blood. He tastes like a man, not a boy, 
Not a stolen encounter behind her daddy's barn. Not a steamy session in a cold prison cell with a soon-to-be-dead lover. A man who's lived in this world and become part of it. A man dirty, hard, tainted with the decay of it and the world before it. Even so, him and his kisses are awkward, deliberate, wary. But he's also soft, slow, unconsciously deft of hand and mouth as his lips find their way to her neck. She wonders if he's been faking all this time, if he's more experienced than his thorniness has let on. But she doesn't think so. He's no Don Juan, no Lothario. He's just Daryl Dixon, and his hot, wet, open-mouthed kisses, thrilling as they may be, show he's nervous as all fuck. It makes her want to soothe him, tell him it's okay, that this is exactly what she wants. But under the searing heat of his mouth, she doesn't trust herself with words, doesn't think she remembers any, if she ever knew any to start off with. She's not sure what she's doing when she puts her palm against his neck, where his skin is clammy despite the coolness of the morning, and then runs it over his shoulder, down his arm, to his knuckles, where she interlaces their fingers over her hip. But it makes him lean into her, shift his attention from her neck to her clavicles, and then up to her cheek. He's eager now, and she lets him press against her, feels his belly against hers, muscles toughened and molded by a world too harsh to live in, the hardness of his cock against her thigh. He's perfect in his own weathered way, perfect in his tenderness. She stifles a smile at the thought. Who would have imagined that it would come to this? Her and him, the Disney princess and the redneck Robin Hood. It's like a subverted Snow White, a twisted fairy tale with teeth that'll eat you up and spit out the bones if you think on it too long. He kisses her lips again, long and deep and hard, hands sliding up between them to cup her cheek, tangle in her greasy hair. She can't remember when she last washed it, but he doesn't seem to care, so she decides she doesn't either. Missed you, he whispers. Missed your sass, girl. She loves him fully in that moment. The feeling comes fast, unexpectedly, a swelling in her chest as her heart seems to burst. She's told herself she doesn't cry anymore about the people she loses, but looking at Daryl, half hovering above her in the morning light, she knows she'll cry when she loses him again. She hopes she'll go first. It's almost certain she will. You'll be the last man standing. He kisses her again, one last time, before bowing his head to her shoulder and then drawing away to lie down again, arms tied around her. Her body feels liquid and boneless, and she thinks that if he lets her go, she'll just fall into the floor, become one with the house, a stain on the ugly black rug that no sane person would ever have spent actual money on. She touches his hip, holds it. There's a part of her that's disappointed. Disappointed, but relieved. She'd gone into this hoping for more, visions of sweaty, dirty sex clouding her brain. But now she feels no reason to press any further, no reason to rush. They're safe. He's safe. It might be the end of the world, but this... This is the start of something wonderful. The start of something good and pure and perfect. And she's not going to push that. Not going to push him. One thing at a time. They have all the time this no-good world is prepared to give them.
Safe Up Here With You by Dynamic Symmetry Chapter 2 This chapter will be long on the grass. He used to have nightmares like this, is another thing. He used to have them frequently, jumbled in with the others, where his dad is a walker and pursuing him for miles and miles of trackless road, hair patchy as mange and face half sloughed off and tongue lolling through a broken jaw and with the ones where he wakes up and Merle is lying next to him, reeking of blood and torn gut with his skull a churn stabbed in horror. And when he raises his head, Merle grins at him and grades, Finally found old Merle, didn't you, baby brother? Finally came after old Merle and finished the job for that asshole whose dick you've been sucking this whole time. In those nightmares, she was there, and she didn't know him. Didn't know anything. She wasn't dead, but she might as well have been a walker, plodding through the world with her head slightly cocked like a brain-damaged bird. Brain-damaged. She is. He's not a doctor. This is such a mistake. Should have left her with Edwards. Gone off by himself if he couldn't bear it. Not this. He goes to his mattress and pulls off his boots, shirt, and he lies on his side for a long time and looks at her as the rise and fall of her body slows and deepens into sleep. He put her by the window because he thought the light might be good for her, and the moon is high and waxing and bright, and it spills all over her. Her skin is far from perfect, scarred now in more than just the four places, but in that light she looks like marble, like ivory, something bloodless and carved. She's alive, and she's real, and she's sleeping, which means she'll get stronger. She'll be stronger tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow they'll try again. He's not giving up on her. Not this time. He'll die first. If he can't save her now, a significant part of him feels like that might be exactly what he deserves. He put her by the light, but she's not the only one getting it. The place has a southeastern exposure, and the sun floods into the room as soon as it crests the horizon, drowning everything. It slams against his closed eyelids and wrenches them open, only to shove them closed again when screwdrivers stab into his retinas. He winces and rolls away, and wishes he had either put the two of them elsewhere or invested in some kind of blinds. Except no, not here. Not this window. It's too big, it's too high, and when he does manage to open his eyes and peer groggily around him, sitting up with his legs tangled in the sheets and a hand raised to shade his face, he sees her there in front of it, just like the previous afternoon, her palms flat against the glass, a little dark form against the brilliance. The deck wraps around, but here there's nothing but a sheer drop, and he has a sudden, horrifically vivid fantasy of her backing up and stancing like an Olympic sprinter, launching herself forward and arcing gracefully through the glass and out into the morning in a beautiful cloud of glittering shards. He wouldn't be able to stop her. Not at this distance. He would never get to her in time. Maybe he's making more mistakes. Maybe everything is a mistake. Maybe it's impossible to do anything here that isn't basically a huge mistake. But she stands there with her hands against the glass, and she doesn't back up, doesn't leap. She doesn't do anything. She's just there, dressed as he left her in a loose t-shirt and boxer shorts that don't entirely fit her and hang a bit off her hips. And she looks so small, so young. It's impossible that she's been through all of this, young as she is. Impossible to go through it and still be standing at all. 
She's so strong. Beth, he calls softly, and she turns, and for a fraction of a second, but long enough that he's certain he saw it, a smile is pulling at the corners of her mouth. Barely there, but that slight curve. He's seen it before. It's her. And it's gone. Except not entirely. It left something behind. That spark in her, brighter. He can see its glow from all the way across the room. He clears his throat, nudging hair out of his eyes. You want to eat? She nods, and he gets up, and starts to pull breakfast together. Once again, she eats in that mindless, mechanical way, but once again she is eating, and she's doing it without arguing or fighting him, and she's doing it all by herself. He watches her, but he tries to be less obtrusive about it, even though he's still pretty sure she wouldn't, and doesn't, care. He has to talk to her. He sucks at talking, and that includes talking to her. With her, it's easier than it is with most other people, or it was, though he was starting to be able to talk at least a bit to Aaron. But he still sucks at it, and now he has this strongly distinct impression that whatever brings her back in the end, communication is going to be a significant part of it, so he has to suck it up and try. Gonna head to town tomorrow. Do you think you can come with me? It's dangerous to leave her here, but he hadn't planned on taking her, and he still doesn't because everything is differing degrees of dangerous, and all that's left to him is semi-effective risk management but he figures it doesn't hurt to at least float the idea and see if she grabs it and holds on. And in fact, she is looking up at him, that same expression of mild consternation, that same sense of something gnawing at her. Could use someone to watch my back. It doesn't look too bad down there, but... He wipes his mouth on the back of his hand. Crumbs, sticky. Not all of the former confined to the plate, because he will never be a tidy eater. Canned yams and crackers. The former aren't so terrible eaten cold. You probably remember how to handle a gun. You're good with it. I'd feel better. He stops, searching her face. None of this is a lie. He doesn't think he can take her with him, but holy fucking Christ, he wants to. The two of them together, like it was. He trusted her with his life. He wants to do that again. And, very slowly... She nods. He has no idea what to do. Part of him should have anticipated this, should have at least prepared a plan for it, because what the fuck is he supposed to do now? Tell her he changed his mind? Tell her he never meant it, never thought she would respond at all, let alone say yes? Letting her, taking her, putting a gun in her hands. Can he do that? He absolutely can't. Beth, he whispers. But she looks over toward the door and something happens to her face. Something he's seen before. A deeper flatness. A grayness. A fog settling around and enveloping her into its chilled, wet heart. Her hands are hooking into claws, trying to dig into the smooth, glossy wood of the tabletop. You should leave me down there, she says softly. Why did you bring me here? I don't belong here. I have to be down there with them. I have to eat. He can barely speak. Girl, no. You're eating right now. This? She turns her attention back to the plate. 
She's still calm, still flat, but there's an edge of vague scorn in her tone. This isn't food. This is... I don't know what this is. I don't know why none of you people believe me. Look at me. Now her attention shifts up to him, her eyes meeting his. Wide, glassy blue devouring her face like her oversized t-shirt is devouring her body. I felt it. I'm not here. You don't see it because you don't want to see. But that doesn't make it less true. You're a walker? She nods. Somehow he's found a way in the last few moments to make himself cold. Hard and cold as the chrome that covers the entire kitchen. He'll have to do this. He'll have to do it a lot. He should get comfortable with it. You got shot in the fucking head, Beth. Keeping his voice level, careful. He's not going to yell. If you're a walker and you got shot in the fucking head, why are you still around? She doesn't answer him. Her expression doesn't change. She doesn't budge her gaze. He doesn't budge his. It's a standoff. That's exactly what it is. He's staring her down and she's trying to do the same. Somehow he never really understood that he would be fighting her. Not just fighting for her, but her. He's probably not going to be able to do this peacefully. He's probably going to have to beat her down. He's probably going to have to break her. Finally, she looks away again. Her nails are still digging into the wood, her knuckles bone pale. Abruptly, she thrusts the plate across the table and gets up with a sharp jerk, kicking her chair back and turning from him. Her back is expressing everything she needs to say and isn't. She's angry. She's angry, and that's so good because she's not numb. There's fire. You're stupid, she says. You're stupid and blind, and you'll see. She stalks away from him, heading across the expansive floor toward the short flight of stairs that leads up to the other rooms. He doesn't take his eyes off her, her lifted head, her purposeful gait, her hands clenched at her sides. Her outside the shack, not backing down, not budging, not afraid of him, solid in what she knew. She was burning bright then, and she was so alive, and she threw him into awe of her. She held herself like this, like she is now, arguing that she's dead. It doesn't matter. Inside, he's rejoicing. He follows her after a while. Not hurrying. He refuses to hurry. He refuses to panic. He let her have some time. Maybe he shouldn't leave her alone, no, but maybe she also needs to be alone. She hasn't been alone for a single waking moment since she woke up that first terrible time. She's so far away from herself. He's not sure that being constantly in the company of other people is necessarily going to help her find her way back. So he goes through the kitchen cabinets again, even though he's been through them already. There's a pantry. It's not very well stocked, but there's stuff, and a lot of it is non-perishable, and there's a wall of wine bottles. Floor-to-ceiling rack. He saw them the day before, but he didn't take any time to really look at them, and he pulls a few of them down. He knows nothing whatsoever about wine. He knows that it can make you drunk. He knows it's not his first choice in terms of methods of getting drunk. He knows that it, also, can be ridiculously expensive. Or it could, when expensive still meant shit. He puts the bottles away. The last time they drank together, it didn't end so well. Probably best to not try it again. 
He goes back into the kitchen and he stops for a few seconds, head cocked, listening. No sound at all from upstairs. He turns to the block of knives on the counter and removes them all. He goes back into the pantry and pushes them under the wine rack, far back enough that they won't be visible unless someone really gets down there and looks. This feels like a pointless exercise. They're on a cliff, for fuck's sake, and it's really true that all she has to do is make a determined run for the window. And even if she doesn't do that, there are probably any number of other ways to hurt herself in here. And Christ, he's seen for himself that all she needs are her own fingernails. But he does it anyway. He's not a shrink. He's never been to a shrink. He has no desire whatsoever to go to a shrink, if one were even available. But he recognizes this as a coping mechanism. An attempt to exert control over an environment and a situation where he really has almost no control at all. He goes out to the bike and he gets the other pack. He considers it for a moment, standing in the echoing foyer, then takes it to the pantry and stuffs it at the far end of the wine rack from the door, in the gap between it and the back wall. It's not very accessible, and if he needs it in a hurry, which is kind of why he has it at all, it's going to be a problem. But he can't have it out there. He just can't. What it means. What it's for. He can't. So he finishes this, and he goes back out to the main room, and he pulls his bed into some kind of order, does the same for hers. For fuck's sweet sake, he's never made a bed in his life. And he goes to the stairs, and after another few seconds of listening, he goes up. The bedrooms and the two bathrooms here make up the other half of the house, all spacious, all the same kind of cold and angular and distant, all high ceilings, big windows, very sparse decoration. She's not in the first bedroom he enters, naked box spring, more hardwood, walk-in closet standing open with not much in it but a couple of plastic sheathed suits that don't look like they've been touched since before the turn, and a bunch of unlabeled boxes he doesn't care to rifle through. The second one is almost identical, except for a very large and deeply strange painting over the bed frame, a long streak of black on a white background, haloed in splatters. The center of it looks like a spilled pool of something. When he first saw it, he looked at it long enough to be sure he hated it, and he hates it now, and he gets out of there as fast as he can. She's in the third bedroom. It's smaller. He didn't pull the mattress from it because it's at the very back of the house, and he didn't want to make the trip that far down the hallway if there were two others closer by. Somehow, though the windows are also smaller, it seems brighter, perhaps because the light doesn't have to travel so far to hit the walls and bounce around. The bed is a full rather than a queen. There's another abstract painting that looks like it might be by the same artist, except it's white and green, and he doesn't hate it nearly as much. There's another built-in bookcase with more hardbacks, though these are clearly far less about a display of, oh, I am so fucking cultured as well as extremely rich, and she's sitting on the floor in front of it, her legs folded to the side, bent over something in her lap. He moves up behind her, quiet, but not stealthy. He wants her to know he's there, if she can know. She doesn't turn or look up, but there's a subtle shift in the angle of her head and the set of her shoulders that tells him she's almost definitely aware of him. He drops into a crouch and shifts a little beside her. What you got? Slowly, she swings her head around and focuses on him. The light catches her face, and he sees, like the first time, the cruel scars slashed across her cheek and brow, 
and the tiny star crater up by her hairline, and the healing scabs on her cheek where she clawed her skin open, another scab at the corner of her bottom lip where she bit herself to taste the blood. Her eyes are so big and blue, and for the moment he knows they see him, and his chest twists into a hot, bloody fist because she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, because she's here. He rips his gaze away from her and drops it down to what she's holding in her lap. It's a book, clearly old, pages in good condition, but gently yellowed, and the cloth edges of the cover slightly frayed, and he can't make out the actual text, but he can see the title in the top left-hand corner of the page. The Secret Garden. You ever read it before? He never has. He knows it exists, but he knows nothing about it, other than the fact that presumably there's a garden in it, and he's never so much as touched a copy. She nods. Her attention is still fixed on him, and he's pleading her silently and wildly to keep it there. When you were a kid? She nods. You like it? He's flailing. He has to say something to her, but he's a roiling bag of panic. He thought it used to be hard to say things to her when it felt like there was a lot at stake, that he couldn't fuck up again and hurt her somehow. But now he doubts anything he could say could really hurt her in that way. And yet talking to her is next to impossible. She doesn't respond at all, not at first, and her eyes slide just a bit out of focus, and he's thinking he might have lost her again when she speaks. Daddy read it to me. Okay, all right. Daddy, he can work with this. He lowers himself the rest of the way to the floor, sits next to her, angles himself so he's facing her. How old were you? I was... She frowns. Her eyes are distant again, but not because she's slipping out of the world. She's trying to remember. I was eight. Seven or eight. Mama, too. They... they took turns. They were taking turns getting me into bed. But Daddy did the voices, so I liked him best. And she punches him in the fucking jaw when she gives him a smile. Small and warm and so sweet. And leans forward a bit, suddenly conspiratorial. I never told anyone. Didn't want Mama. Didn't want to hurt her feelings. I didn't have favorites. Didn't do that. But I did. With that. She looks down at the book again. Daddy did the voices, she repeats, and it's so soft that he knows she's not talking to him anymore. This is something. This is a sacred moment. This is the opening of a door, wider and clearer than any since he first set eyes on her after Grady, and he has to walk up to it, and if he's very, very careful, he might be allowed to walk through. He reaches up and lays a hand on her shoulder, light as he can, and he feels the bones under her shirt, so delicate even if she was never fragile, and a minute shiver rolls through her, but she doesn't flinch. She doesn't pull away. Can you read me something? He nods down at the pages. Anything from that part. I never read it. Just read me a bit of it. Can you do that? Please. I... She shakes her head, but he doesn't think she's actually refusing him. The way she's hunched herself, the way she's not quite meeting his eyes, it feels so much more like she's simply uncertain, uncomfortable. And he hates making her uncomfortable. He needs to get used to it, and he needs to do so 
immediately. Beth, can you? Something in him tenses. Once again, this feels strangely like tweaking some unseen and undefined line. For me. She rolls her shoulder beneath his hand, purses her lips, reaches up and pushes a few strands of hair back from her face. And the movements are so quintessentially Beth that for a few seconds he can't breathe. She reads. One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live forever and ever and ever. One knows it sometimes when one gets up at the tender solemn dawn time and goes out and stands out and throws one's head far back and looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing and flushing and marvelous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out and one's heart stands still of the strange, unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun, which has been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. One knows it then, for a moment or so. She pulls in a soft breath. And one knows it sometimes when one stands by oneself in a wood at sunset, and the mysterious deep gold stillness slanting through and under the branches seems to be saying slowly again and again something one cannot quite hear, however much one tries. Then sometimes the immense quiet of the dark blue at night with the millions of stars waiting and watching makes one sure, and sometimes a sound of far-off music makes it true, and sometimes a look in someone's eyes. She falls silent and merely sits, motionless, staring down at the book. And he has no fucking idea now, and never will, even if he really does live forever and ever and ever what to possibly ever say. And she looks up at him, puzzled. That same puzzlement. That same confusion. Where's Daddy? Another punch in the jaw, this one he doesn't see coming and really should have, because no one gets to have anything good. And inside he reels back, and before he can recover, she's pushing on. Daddy should be here. Daddy's dead. The governor... Suddenly her lip trembles and her eyes are bright too bright, and his entire body is numb from the neck down. I should be with Daddy. He should be here. Did something happen? He always said he would be. We would all be together. In heaven. Daryl, he did. He... And Mama and Sean. Where are they? Talk, you useless fucking piece of shit. Say anything. They ain't here. He's dropped his hand away from her shoulder, but he touches her again, wanting to do more and not sure if he should or can, or how he should touch her even if he did and he can't. Can't do what he really wants to do and pull her close, pull her against him. When he tried before, she fought to get away from him, and he's not sure he can bear that now. They're dead, Beth. You ain't dead. I am. The tears are running down her face, but she's gentle now like she's the one comforting him, and she reaches up and brushes his hair aside and lays her warm little hand against his cheek. Small and soft, a child's hand. She was a child, a girl, and that was torn away from her, burned out of her, blown to hell, and then he ruined what was left, because he does. And she's too young for this monstrosity, but she's not a child anymore. She hasn't been one for so long, I am, she repeats, that terrible, relentless gentleness in her voice, in her face, in her eyes, in her hand. She strokes her thumb across his cheekbone. 
so are you. We all are. We're all dead. We have been for a long time. Look around. You think this is living? She shakes her head. We're all dead, Daryl. I know why Mama and Daddy and Sean aren't here. We're all dead. And this is hell. She doesn't speak for the rest of the day. He leaves her alone. They eat dinner in total silence. He doesn't try to talk to her. He's not sure he can deal with whatever she might say. She seems perfectly calm now, perfectly content in her blank kind of way, and he'll take that as enough. He doesn't make a fire. It's not as cold tonight, and they should probably go easy on the stacked wood. And anyway, he doesn't want to. Like she's a child, he gets her to change and wash her face and brush her teeth. And like she's a child, he puts her to bed again, tucks her in, sits with her for a few moments as her breathing slows. He doesn't touch her. The moon is up again and bright, and it bleeds all the color out of her. Motionless, she's a carving. She's stone. We're all dead, and this is hell. Just now, he doesn't know that he would argue with that. We'll try again tomorrow. Fragmented Anamnesis by CC5 He doesn't remember the sound of her voice. This has been tormenting him to the brink of despair. He doesn't remember her song or her whispers. Doesn't remember her giggles or the little hmph sound she made when displeased. Doesn't remember her yelling or her crying doesn't remember her storytelling voice or the soft way she spoke to Judith. She used to hum all the time, even back at the farm so many years ago, but he cannot recall. He remembers the songs she sang at numerous fire pits, at the prison, at the funeral home. Of all the comrades that e'er I had, they're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay But since it falls unto my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be with you all. At times he tries to replay a melody, but in his memory it is not accompanied by her gentle tone. It sounds off, 
sounds so very wrong, hauntingly slow down to the point he can't bring up the song again. He doesn't remember all her words. Some sentences come back to him, but they never seem truly right, except the one, I'll be gone one day. Other conversations lost. Only left are half-sentences, nonsensical and empty of any meaning. But he knows she did speak a lot about everything and nothing, to soothe and to entertain, and he wishes for more stories all the time. He remembers that there was a softness to her voice, always, a pleasantness in speech and song, even when he told her otherwise, even when he told her to stop making so much fucking noise all the fucking time, to shut up even, because he did. He took her voice for granted, and what wouldn't he give now to hear her say anything, if only a single word, one last time? He remembers her sitting at the piano, fingers gliding over the keys so gracefully, strong when they needed to be, and feather light a beat later. Remembers the way the candlelight made her hair shine in a dark orange that reminds him of the fire they'd set to the moonshine shack, and the blood that covered her hair much later on. The flickering light framing her head like a halo, which is such a ridiculous comparison, of course. She was no angel. He wouldn't dare to put her on that pedestal. But she was simply, genuinely good. The last truly good person in the world, perhaps. And that might not sound like much, but it gave him more hope and courage than anything else in this desolate world could. He doesn't remember how her pale skin felt under his fingertips, when he taught her how to shoot his bow and corrected her stance. He doesn't remember the pointiness of her elbow when he reached for it to nudge her forward. He doesn't remember how her weight felt on his back, her arms slung around his neck during that serious piggyback ride. He remembers her hair tickling his face when he leaned close to see if her aim was good. He remembers her breath on his neck when she hugged him from behind, warm and enveloping him with calm even in the Georgia summer heat. He remembers her smell, the sweetness of her sweat and the bitterness of cold smoke from their nightly fires, the lingering smell of cherry blossom from her soap mixed with the piney, earthy smell of nature around them, penetrating their pores, the smell of decay and coppery blood layered on top. She smelled of death as much as she did of life. He remembers the shape of her lips and the way her tendons curved along her neck, the daintiness of her wrists the sway of her hips when she ran. But as much as he tries, truly and always tries, he does not quite remember her face, only remembers her body in fragments, cannot picture her whole anymore. Were he to paint her, the canvas would show merely pieces of the puzzle that once came together as one unique human being. Something inside him shattered as well, and those fragments bury painfully into his flesh never to be put together again. She's falling apart in his memory, every day a little bit more, little pieces going missing. He can still see her eyes when he closes his, and forces them shut in concentration, pressing his palms hard to his eyes until his head aches under the pressure. On good days, his mind allows him to see her eyelashes and the way she blinked, and he tries to count them one by one until the image fades, and it always does far too fast. And all the colors about her, they start to fade, and yes, he knows her eyes are blue, but what shade? How light or how dark? What type of yellow was her polo? What color is her bracelets? 
What shade of brown her boots? How pink her lips and how blonde her hair? So she keeps falling apart in his memory, into tinier pieces every day, pieces that turn into a gray monochrome. She's fading away from his mind, sneaking her way into the nothingness, and he should remember, for he remembers everything else so vividly. He can describe in great detail the first time he killed a rabbit, skinned it, cooked and ate it. After so many years, he still knows every tiny part, the softness of the fur, the warmth of the blood, the exact shape of its little dead eyes, the sound of the burning flesh over the scorching fire, the taste of the charred meat. Her death, unlike the rabbit's, he does not fully remember. This part of her life is a fragmented flash of images that are devoid of all color except the red of her blood sprayed over the hallway and over his face. Warm droplets with a metallic tang like acid on his skin. His nightmares are now abstract, grotesque, but almost always he wakes up with the smell of gunpowder in his nose. Knowing he killed the cop lady doesn't lessen the pain. By now, Noah is dead as well. Beth's death, as such, was in vain. So there is pain. There is an ache, a dullness, the all-encompassing, gaping hole she left behind after carefully entangling herself into his life. There is despair and anguish. There is anger. Why did this happen? Why did she step in front of Dawn? How could she be so fucking stupid? leaving them all behind, leaving him with his chest torn open and bleeding. There is love. He loves her and loved her for a long time. Now he knows and can admit it, if only to himself, and he will love her for as long as he walks this earth. It's just that simple, and if there is anything he's truly sure of, it's this. He's never loved anyone as he loves her. And no matter how furious he gets or falls numb for weeks at a time, he will always love her. And this is what keeps him moving. He uses this love to spread it over his family like a blanket to protect them, care for them in her stead, for her, and in the way that he failed her. There is longing for memories, like the sound of her footprints trailing through the forest with him, the tap of her boots on gravel or tar. She always had a different rhythm, since her steps were smaller than his, but just as persistent. Like the carefree giggles when they burned down the shack, the smell of fire in their noses, and the taste of liquor on their tongue. He knows that after her tears had dried that night, she'd been happy again. They'd been happy for a little while. They had been happy together. No amount of grumpiness or hunger had taken that away. Sadness and fear had been pushed far away many times. There was joy. It lay in good fortune and good company. It lay in peanut butter and pig's feet. It lay in song and piggyback rides. It lay in those small touches. Her small hand on his arm, squeezing gently when she found something that excited her. Sometimes she'd elbow him in the ribs instead, especially once she noticed that it tickled him slightly, which he kept denying, of course. No matter how strong the storm or how dark the night, there was always a bit of light around them, and he knows now that it was her. Trying to hold on to that light now is hard, the illumination becoming dimmer and darker. But she told him something once, about letting go before it kills you. Like with everything else, the exact words escape him. 
but after much contemplation, he can't help but disagree with her. In this case, letting go would be far worse. For as long as he's able, he'll hold on to her light, no matter how fast or far her memory fades from his mind. They don't have much these days, and he doesn't own anything of value but his bow and the knife she used to wear. But that's enough. He can keep himself busy and keep hoping that he makes decisions that would make her proud. Maybe, hopefully, if the gods permit, this will help with the growing despair about losing the memory of her. So he's making new memories, a true effort, and when he sees her again, he will tell her about all that she's missed. Her laughter will fill his ears, and her eyes will shine their brightest blue, and her hand will be so soft and warm in his. And then, all those lost memories, those fragmented pieces, will set themselves together again, and it will be all right. He just has to hang on. One day at a time, for her. Everything for her now. He knows he's living on borrowed time, but he'll make the best of it. Maybe the fragments tearing him bloody from the inside will also fall back together again. Maybe he will find peace in his own end, whenever it may come. Welcome back from your story journey. Uh, I, I forgot to mention this at the very beginning. Uh, if, if you can hear in the background uh, sort of a droning noise, yeah, my neighbors mow the lawn their enormous lawn like every other day. And they're doing that, and this is really the only day I could record this stuff, and I really wanted to get it posted, so that's what you're hearing. Normally I try not to do this, but I don't have one of those handy-dandy soundproof booths to do this in, so obviously I'm sort of restricted in what I can control. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Uh, I especially enjoyed sharing my singing voice with you. Uh, I hope that wasn't too awkward. I mean, I, it, was, it, was sort of, it was sort of fun, um, just because it's something new. Uh, doing my phone sex voice when I first started reading Smut was fun, and now I have done this. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, probably a one-time thing. Of course, I say that, and that means it's probably not going to be a one-time thing. But anywho. I'm going to go ahead and get out of your hair, and I'm going to desperately try, as I always say, to have this not be the last one that I do of these for an entire fucking month. First of all, because I am still intending to do my long-awaited rant episode, and I really want to, because that's fun, and I've gotten a lot of good material from people. By the way, you can still send me stuff if you want to. But also... Uh, October is approaching fast. Super fast. Jesus Christ, I'm going to Poland at the beginning of October and I just realized I've got, like, no time to brush up on my Polish. Shit. I'm gonna be one of those awful Americans. 
Yeah, but anyway, uh, we have the premiere coming up, and Jesus fucking Christ, you guy. Uh, that, for some of us, it means that this is going to be an exciting time. For others of us, it's a time of bitterness and resentment and trying to ignore the fact that this show exists at all. But to each their own, and I love each and every one of you. Alright, I'm gonna get going. And again, like I said, hopefully I will speak to you soon. Ish.